Well, church, let me invite you to open up the scriptures with me this morning to the book of Nehemiah. Our kids are invited to stay right here with us today. Uh, no children's worship time today in the absence of, of David Eanes, our children's minister. And so a couple opportunities for you uh, kiddos as we begin. We're in Nehemiah in just a moment. I'll give you a minute or two. And any of our kids that can let me know, or the first kid, not any kid, the first kid that can let me know what book precedes, comes right before Nehemiah, and what book comes right after Nehemiah. There are two opportunities there for a prize later today. So I'll ask you in just a moment. We'll, we'll hang on to that in just a moment, uh, Josh. And I saw that hand first, so we'll come back to, to you. But we're in Nehemiah chapter 4 uh, today. We've been trekking through this portion of the Bible. We just... Uh, we just sang about our holy God and we come to know who he is. We come to know that he indeed is holy because of his word, through his word. And so we want to hear from him today through his word. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4 for a message titled Resilient Ministry. Uh, resilience is defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. The capacity to recover quickly from Difficulties. We mentioned St. Stephen's Church earlier this morning. Certainly they've been on our minds over the last couple days and no doubt faith family that has undergone tragedy this week. And yet we are, we are confident, I am confident that even today, even before today, in the days and the weeks and the months ahead that the Lord will lead them, that he will stir them, that he will speak into their lives in a way that it proves that because of his presence and power, that church will go on. Resilient ministry, trusting the Lord. I'm confident he, he has much good for those brothers and sisters in Christ in the days and the years ahead. Resilient ministry. As we open the Bible this morning, that's what I want us to consider. In other words, what does it look like to give our lives to the Lord over the long haul? Over the long haul, through the ups and the downs. Not just at the moment that we first profess faith in Jesus Christ. Not just the first full week of June every year when we do vacation Bible school. Not just when we go off to Memphis or Ohio on a mission trip. But each and every day for the duration of our lives. Believer, Christ follower, you, you are called to Christian ministry. We are called to Christian ministry to serve the Lord together with his people in the context of community. We saw that last week as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 3. We saw the community coming together to serve the Lord for this particular endeavor. So what does it look like? What does it look like, church, to serve him faithfully through all of life, both through the triumphs and the tragedies? I think Nehemiah tells us, God's words, God's word shows us. And so we want to look at it together today. All right, kids, two questions I ask. What book immediately precedes Nehemiah? Joshua. Before. Ezra. Yeah, give it up for Josh. It's good. It's good. All right. Any hands for after? Lily Kate? I see you back there. Esther, that's right. Give it up for Lily Kate. Very good. All right, so you two kids, y'all see me after after Sunday school, meet me out here by the welcome desk. I have a prize for you. Thank you all. Thank you all. All right, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, page 385 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that 
uh, copy of God's Word. Would you join me standing, all who are able, for the reading of of God's Holy Word? A lengthy chapter. I want to read this full chapter. It's a little different than what we saw last week, the list of names, challenging names. This is the heart of the story here, and it's a good story. So let's pay attention. Uh, as I sometimes say, lengthier text, don't lock your knees, uh, but uh, lock your mind, your heart, your eyes in on the Word of God. Let's hear what he has to say. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Senballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night 
and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Did you bow with me? No, God, we bow before you together, collectively asking you to speak to us now through the proclamation of your word. Instruct us, guide us, shape us for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, church, we're, we're reaching back. Like we're reaching way back, nearly 2,500 years. But the truths that we find here, the truths from God's word that we find right here in this story are just as relevant today as they ever were. And here's the message for us today. God equips his servants to advance his kingdom despite worldly opposition. God equips his servants, his people, he equips his servants to advance his kingdom despite worldly opposition. Now, I'm far from a literary expert, but I'm told that there are five basic parts to every good story. The characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict, and the resolution. Well, this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 4, recounts the conflict of this particular story. We're right in the middle of it. And so far, everything's been going the right way. Right? Just to review quickly, think about this particular story. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king in the palace uh, of Persia. He's outside of Palestine, outside of the land of Israel. He's serving as an exile in a foreign land, but he's been given a prestigious position there, an important position there, in relation to, to the king, King Artaxerxes. And he hears news that things are not well in Jerusalem. The wall's been broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. The people there are in disgrace. And so he broken over this, knowing this is not God's plans for his people or his place. He, he cries out to God. He weeps before God. He prays before God. He fasts before God. And the Lord leads him to approach his boss, who is the king, and ask for an extended leave of absence to go to Jerusalem and to lead this major construction project of rebuilding the walls. And so he goes with a plan in mind. He, he goes and incredibly, providentially, miraculously, the king grants him favor, grants him safe travels, equips him with sufficient supplies, and he goes to Jerusalem. He goes out at night. Remember that journey that we read about? He goes out on a horse at night and surveys the wall's conditions. And then he formulates a further plan and he comes before the people and he tells them what God has done. He pitches his plan and the people jump on board. So this thing is happening. They're gathering. They're assigned various places along the wall, next to him, next to him, next to him, all these groups gathering to rebuild this wall. This is happening. What could possibly go wrong? If God is for us, who can be Against us. So Paul's words. Senballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. That's who. Three powerful men controlling nearby territories surrounding Judah. Men far more interested in oppressing the vulnerable for personal gain than they are in glorifying God. What a reminder for us. How prevalent that is in our own time. Certainly has seasons in our own hearts. Far more interested in approaching the life through the lens of 
What can be accomplished? How can I live and act and do and conduct myself in a way that brings most personal gain rather than the praise of the God who who made me and who saves me? So that's the interest of these men. And so they gather their friends and they gather their fighters and they begin throwing stinging darts of ridicule at the Jews. What are you, what are you pathetic Jews think you're doing? You, you can't, you can't rebuild that wall. You think you're going to offer a few little sacrifices to your God and magically he's going to make the whole thing spring up successfully? How utterly foolish. That's what they're saying here. This is, no small wall. I think we may have a picture of it, of Nehemiah's wall, a section here of Nehemiah's wall. You can see how this thing was approached. It was a significant wall built by stones. This is the 5th century B.C., rebuilding this wall. A tedious, a laborious task. So we said last week, archaeologists have uncovered that this thing was about 8 to 9 feet in width. It's a big wall. And then this fella, Tobiah, jumps in. He says that he's at his side. He's at the side of, what does it say? Verse, uh, verse, verse three. Was that Sanballat's side? I sort of think of him as the, you know, sort of the bully's sidekick. The bully's smaller sidekick. Uh, you might think of, of Grover Dill, uh, who is Scott Farkas's sidekick in A Christmas Story. His crummy little toady. And he says, where, where, I don't know where this comes from. Yeah! If even a fuzzy little fox climbed up on that wall, the whole thing would come crashing down. Right? This is only beginning. Ridicule aimed at totally demoralizing the crew turns to threats of violence. And yet the Lord continues to provide faith and courage and wisdom to build on. God equips his servants to advance his kingdom despite worldly opposition. And when we encounter opposition for serving Christ, and we certainly will, When we encounter, when God's people encounter opposition for serving Him, prayer remains our primary weapon. Prayer remains our primary weapon. I want to give three principles this morning in this text for resilient ministry. And here's the first. Prayer remains our primary weapon. Now, the primary purpose of prayer, and I think this is important, the primary purpose of prayer isn't to eliminate Pain. Certainly, we were invited, we're urged, we're welcome to cry out to the Lord in distress, in pain. The primary purpose, I don't think, for prayer is to eliminate pain. Remember, Nehemiah's been praying. We, we've noted that already. He's a man of prayer. He's been praying throughout this whole story. And yet, here he encounters opposition. We pray because there's an enemy... Behind earthly enemies. We, we pray because there's a cosmic battle unfolding, still unfolding, even though the outcome is, is certain, it's sure. And while Christ the King sits on his throne, Satan and his pawns aim to wreak havoc on the Lord's people here. Satan is not mentioned in this story. The devil's not mentioned here, but he's certainly here. So, believers, be strong in the Lord. That's what the text says, what the scriptures say, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The schemer, 
That's who he is. Persuading the Sanballats and Tobias of the world to take aim at Christ and his bride. Seeking to rob God of his glory and hinder the plans of our king. A vain attempt. A vain attempt to thwart God's plans. The psalmist asks the question, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Church, that's what the devil does. That is his plan. That is his approach. He spends his days opposing God. And so when the people of God strive to exalt God, we shouldn't be surprised at the presence of opposition. Rather, we should expect criticism for serving Christ. Should expect criticism for serving Christ. Now nobody likes criticism. At least nobody likes receiving it. A lot of folks like giving it. Some of you like giving it. So do I, right? None of us go around looking for it, but we're all going to get some of it, especially if we're spending our lives to exalt Jesus. Of course, this is, this is why Paul would write, he'd go on in Ephesians chapter 6, he would say, in addition to all the other spiritual armor, take up the shield of faith. Why? What, what's the purpose of that? With which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Jesus told his disciples, he told his followers, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I think Jesus' words would have been helpful context for Nehemiah's wall crew. By and large, the world stands opposed to God, so God's people doing God's work in God's way should expect some opposition. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we go looking for it. But when we encounter it, our impulse ought to be run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. You see, resilient ministry isn't ministry in your own strength. It's not independent ministry, but it's ministry done in dependence on the Lord. It's a good reminder For all of us, certainly a good reminder for me that the church won't be built solely by human gifts and wisdom and efforts, apart from the sovereign and gracious and present hand of of Almighty God. I think about our Engage Meadowbrook initiative. If you've not yet gone out with us into the neighborhood, I certainly hope that you will. We've got an opportunity coming up very soon. But if you have it, you might imagine that we, we bang on doors until we get an answer and we preach the gospel until someone listens. But that's not what we're doing. Not at all. No, we're praying and trusting the Spirit of God to lead us where He's working. And regardless of the outcome of our particular encounters, we pray the ones we encounter would be left with a positive impression of Christ and His church. Now notice Nehemiah's response here to ridicule. Verse 4, hear us, our God, for we are despised 
And notice here in the context, so verses 1 through 3, opposition, 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 ridicule. Verses 4 and 5, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And we see it again in verse 9. He runs to the Lord, praying for God's justice. You see, it's good and right to pray God's name would be honored and that those who oppose him would be corrected. This is not a prayer of personal vengeance, but zeal for God's glory. Likewise, church, we we pray. We pray that those who oppose Christ would turn to Christ. We pray that they would experience conviction from the Holy Spirit and turn to the Savior. And we pray, we ought to pray that God would judge injustice and thwart the plans of the wicked. That's what Nehemiah and his people are doing here. Prayer remains our primary weapon. Principle number two for resilient ministry, biblical conviction trumps popular consensus. Biblical conviction trumps popular consensus. In other words, what the Lord says should be given more weight, much more weight than what people say. We see this from Nehemiah's response to the faithless thinking of those who were all around him, from the faithless thinking of the crowds. In verse 10, it's a threat of internal discouragement over fatigue and the sheer amount of work left to be done. In verse 11, it's the evil plots of Sanballat and his cronies threatening to kill the Israelites and to stop the work. And then again, a third punch in verse 12. It's the Jews living beyond the city's walls and surrounding villages near some of these enemies coming and saying, you guys need to stop this. I'm telling you, you need to stop. I'm telling you, these guys, these they're coming and it's going to be bad. Flee the city. That's what they're saying. We can see, I think, from a map on the screen. Well, if you can, you probably can't read that, but you can see the color codes there. But there in the purple is Judah, right? That's where Jerusalem is located. Samaria in the north, that's the territory of Senballat. To the, uh, to the south, uh, the, the Edomites, land of the Arabs, that's the area controlled by Geshem. Uh, to the east, uh, the Tobiads, the land of Ammon, that's the region controlled by Tobiah, and now in this chapter we're introduced to a fourth enemy on the other side, on the west side, and that's the Ashdods, the Ashdods, the men of Ashdod. So they're all around. The threat is real. They're ganging up, ready to attack, ready to oppose the people of, of Israel. And church ministry isn't easy. It's not easy. Serving the Lord is not easy in any particular capacity. Church ministry, ministry, leadership isn't easy. I just reminded, just thinking about this and chewing over this and doing some research and study this week, I was reminded that some studies suggest as many as 50% of pastors leave vocational ministry within the first five years of ever beginning it. Came across another recent study, a Barna group survey that was released just a few months ago that revealed more than one-third of pastors have considered quitting during COVID, because of the challenges associated with leading a group, leading an organization during this 
particular season on top of other challenges. And I dare say that we would find similar stats for missionaries. Without similar stats for those that are leading nonprofits and those serving in other taxing capacities, whatever they may be, in the body of Christ. But here's Nehemiah. Listen, here's Nehemiah serving the Lord, leading the people, and like so many leaders, criticism surrounds them. Is he going to be swayed by popular consensus or by biblical conviction? And praise God, God equips Nehemiah to continue advancing the Lord's kingdom by stirring him to stand upon God's word. And likewise, may we be a people who in the midst of opposition, trust and obey the Lord. May we trust and obey the Lord. Here's what he does. Rather than fret or flee the situation, he leans upon the Lord. He takes action. Notice that dependence upon the Lord and work for the Lord don't stand in opposition to one another. Here's a man who takes action. Right, think about searching for for a job. If you need a job, as a believer, hopefully we, when we need a, to be provided for in that way, hopefully we don't just sort of sit in a corner and pray that God would provide. Certainly, that's appropriate to pray and ask for God's provision. We also take steps properly to let other people know and to submit resumes. Right, we take action consistent with what we believe God's will. To be, we can say the same thing about parenting. Today's Father's Day, and notice many of you parents don't know how to parent your kids. And the reason I know that's because I don't either. I just was a laugh at that. That's not funny, parents. Okay. Well, I don't know how to parent my kids so often. Don't listen, kids. Right? I could think of examples all throughout this week. If I had time away from kids, I could probably write a book on. Bloopers of parenting, no doubt. I can think of even yesterday, one of my kids sticking his hand in a wet bucket of paint. Or I think of a time this last, I think it was last Sunday, uh, at lunch, dipping his chip in cheese dip and then grazing it through his brother's hair and putting it in his mouth without even knowing it. Like, these things happen all the time. So when it comes to parenting, when things happen, such as these and many others, certainly we seek the Lord, pray for wisdom, but we also take action for things that we do to correct and to guide and to lead in those particular situations. And the same is true for Nehemiah. Throughout the story, this is a guy of prayer and action. What does he do? Verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. Right? So here's this wall. We're already told in this story that the men have rebuilt the wall to half its height. But even so, they're exposed places. Nehemiah says, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. Like, good strategy, right? You, you may not care all that much about the city. You may not be willing to risk your, your own life, but you're going to risk your life for the sake of those that you love. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So this guy's signed up to manage a construction project, but now he's suddenly also a military commander. And he approaches one task just as he does the other, completely depending on God and ready to do the work of God. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight 
for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. In essence, this guy says, quit your worrying. Here's the plan. Gather your weapons, guard the low spots, and trust the Lord. This was God's idea, and if he calls us to it, he's going to lead us through it. So let's get back to work. Fight for your families. I can hardly imagine a more fitting challenge and charge for fathers on Father's Day. Fight for your families. For the faith and the well-being of your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and and your homes. Trust the Lord. I wonder if either of our mission teams from the last week might have a story where things didn't go as planned. I bet you do. I've never been on a mission trip where something didn't go as planned. Maybe you were shorthanded and asked to do something you didn't really want to do. Perhaps an opportunity didn't produce the fruit that you were hoping it would. Or maybe it was just so blistering hot where you were, like it was here, that you really didn't want to be doing anything at all. Whatever the case, we pray the Spirit stirred you, like Nehemiah, to exalt the Lord God in your own heart and press on working to advance His kingdom. You see, faithful leaders exalt Christ and work to advance His kingdom. Faithful leaders work to exalt Christ, or exalt Christ and work to advance his kingdom. Notice again, this guy, this Nehemiah, proven leader though he was, did not toot his own horn. He didn't say, come on guys, look what I'm doing. Can't you get it together? No, he didn't toot his own horn, but he gave glory to his God. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And then again in verse 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Why? Our God will fight for us. Friends, this is God's work. These are his plans. His plans to build his church comprised of people from every nation bowing their knees to Christ the King and spending their lives for the glory of his name. Isn't this Paul's personal ambition? To exalt Jesus as long as he remains here on earth. He says in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. But that I will have sufficient courage. So that now as always. Christ will be exalted in my body. Whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body. What will this, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What kind of labor? Fruitful labor. Church, fruitful labor is resilient ministry. Service to the Lord. Seeking to exalt the Lord Jesus in our hearts, in our homes, in our community, in the church, and around the world. Because we know the Lord, who is great and awesome. The King of all kings, who stooped down to serve and to save and then called the saved... To serve the saviors. So friends, spend your days serving the king who gave his life for you. Spend your days serving the king who gave his very life for you. I wonder what might this look like for us. Father, what might it look like? To lead your family to love and to know and to 
to serve Jesus, to model prayer as your primary weapon, to stand upon biblical conviction over popular consensus and to work to advance Christ's kingdom. Student, I wonder what this might mean for you. Not just in Memphis, but living your life on mission for Christ. Not just in Sunday school, but in middle school. What might this mean for you? Retiree, what might it mean for you in this blessed season of life to spend your days serving the Savior? I don't know, might it mean beginning a neighborhood supper club? Befriending those around you, ultimately, with the hopes that you would see them come to know and follow Jesus Christ. Might it mean going to Moldova? We know one couple for whom it did. Might it mean a renewed commitment to walk with Christ each day and in the company of God's people each Sunday? Whatever it means, whatever it is, and whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Striving together. This is a together thing, a community thing. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. To turn with me to God, echoing the truths of His Word, asking Him to stir us to live lives that reflect it. Would you bow with me, O oh God? We pause before You again. We bow our heads and our hearts before You, and we acknowledge Your greatness, Your goodness, Your presence, Your power, Your plans for Your people. Lord, we thank You that Your plans are for our good. Father, we thank you for being a God who saves. You are the one who has saved, who does save, Lord, who will continue uh, to save. We thank you for, for saving us, for being a God of justice and a God of mercy and a God who invites us into your work to know and to do your plans for the glory of, of your name. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.